Sub GW, SUP, or SUP, stands for Sustainable Urban Planning. This is George Washington University's Sustainable Urban Planning graduate student-run podcast. We interview thought leaders, faculty, fellow students, alumni, and working professionals to talk about sustainable urban planning topics, themes, issues, and news not just in the DMV, but across the country and around the world. Tune in each semester for a new season, new ideas, and to hear what's up with Sustainable Urban Planning. In this episode by me, Helen, and me, Raven, we will go into the importance of using equitable community engagement tactics within the realm of parks and recreation. Today we have guest Matthew Clark. Matthew Clark is the current executive director at the Design Trust for Public Space and former national director of creative placemaking at the Trust for Public Land. As an architect, planner, and author of The Field Guide for Creative Placemaking in Parks, he advocates for the development of diverse public spaces and equitable communities. We are fortunate to have Matthew here to discuss his personal and professional experiences revolving around creative placemaking and park planning through practices of equitable community engagement. Parks are special places with the power to increase diversity, justice, equity, and inclusion. Community engagement is a powerful tool to make not only parks more equitable, but also the communities they serve. Stay tuned to hear more about how equity in parks can be achieved. Let's get started. I'm Raven, I'm here with Helen and uh, Matthew Clark. If you guys could just both each introduce yourself so we uh, know what your voice sounds like. Sure, I'm Helen, hello. Hi there, and I'm Matthew Clark. Okay. Um, so let's just dive right in, I guess. Um, our first question is, how would you uh, define equitable community engagement? Yeah, I think this is a, a really good question. It's a question I think is is really important today. It's increasingly important. People are, are aware of, of the need to define this and the need to also think about this in, in terms of practice. Um, I'll actually tell you, I personally have have moved away from even using the term community engagement and I'll, I'll tell you why a little bit um, um, because because doing so um, automatically suggests a kind of power balance right it suggests that I'm an authority that I know more that I have a, an idea do you agree um, and I, I think in some ways I'm being a little bit um, um, uh, suggestive there. But, but what I mean by that is really under, understanding that the community engagement exists on a spectrum, right? You could really think about a, a kind of a spectrum of engagement. And on the one end, you could think of it in the most purely transactional informative way. So let's say I'm a city government or an organization or a developer or whomever it might be. And I'm doing something that's going to impact a neighborhood or a community. At the very low end, I could tell you what I'm going to do. Like that's like the base level, right? I'm going to say, I'm going to do this as opposed to doing it without telling anybody. Um, maybe the next rung up is saying, I'm going to do this. Do you agree with that? Uh, and then, you know, rung up, rung up, rung up. But I really want to push what's the other, other end of that spectrum, which is something you might call building community power. 
mm. um, kind of a shared sense of power about about um, the future of, of my or our or your neighborhood of our space of our community and say that not only do I want you to have a voice in, let's say, um, a park or a new housing development or a new grocery store, I want you to build that voice such that over time, you, you feel like it, it has meaning and purchase um, across any number of decisions which will affect your livelihood or your place or your environment. Um, so, so ultimately, that equitable community, community engagement means that on the one hand, you're leaning towards that end of the spectrum. You're really about building community power. And secondly, you're very much focused on who has not had voice before, who has not had voice traditionally, whether that's in this country or otherwise. Um, obviously, in, in, in this country, that's very much focused around issues of race, um, of background, identity, of gender, of many other things of which people have been marginalized for whatever reason. And so it's making sure that or whatever your circumstance in life, whatever your position, whatever your identity, that you're aware of those imbalances and 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 take efforts to to um, uh, correct those or to learn about them. Um, and I think that's actually true for whoever you are. You know, whatever position you have in the world, you can you can take a step towards up that rung. You can do do better engagement, do better outreach, do better sharing of power. Um, and I think it's important to also note that it's not you don't get it right and then you're done. You can always work at it and do better at it and learn from it. And that's okay. Like it's okay to, to not um, necessarily be perfect at it all the time. You know, a city government, for example, has very um, 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 kind of regular processes that it has to adhere to. It's okay to take one step up that rung and not have to be um, this kind of um, perfect example. Um, but I think it's, as I said at the very beginning, it's something that, that many more focus on in this year, how important it is to, to develop that equitable community engagement. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, for the better of all of us. I think the first point that you mentioned too with that um, power imbalance between community members and say city officials and uh, you know, in this case, since we're mostly talking about parks and recreations, parks management is really interesting because you know, the residents are the ones that are, you know, more or less going to be there for, you know, the rest of their life. This is their community. This is where they, you know, want to grow up, where uh, where they're living their lives. But uh, for city officials, it's more or less um, a job that's temporary. So uh, they come in, they have like these meetings and, you know, engagement practices. Um, but once they leave, you know, new officials come in and do the process over again with these residents. So it's important to have uh, like you said, this community power and community voice that's long standing and, uh, you know, there for the community members, even when officials come and go. Um, so, yeah, I, I found that really powerful. I also really like the distinction between building community power versus mm -hmm. the kind of knockoff term of empowering communities, because I think building community power is working with a group of underrepresented um, or historically disenfranchised individuals and making sure that the impetus for moving forward or building something is coming from them versus empowering kind of notate denotes giving them something like, oh, you're giving them power, you're making them capable when communities are in and of themselves extremely powerful and resilient. And so I really like that distinction because I think that 
um, it's more respectful and more honoring of the power and um, agency that communities already have. And so um, I'll use that term now and I'll use the building community power instead of community engagement because I'm enjoying that vocabulary. And I think that um, it speaks a lot to that inequity in the process. Um, And so uh, you were the head of creative placemaking at the Trust for Public Land. And so that the Trust for Public Land does a lot of work with parks and open spaces. So how did you um, implement equitable building of community power in parks and in the field of parks and recreation? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great point. And I'm actually going to go back to something that you both actually touched on a little bit, which is, I think, maybe a little bit of a misconception about, about, let's say, community or planning or cities. Um, and I, I think that's a really important one, and, and maybe it'll lead into the, the, the question which you just posed, Raven, which is around maybe an assumption of community versus the city. And I mm-hmm. think there's an assumption that there's a city government, which is, quote, unquote, the man, right? This, this entity which controls everything. And then there's all these people who are being affected by these decisions. It's not how it works, right? Communities exist as part of a matrix of interests, which are intersecting, dynamic, complex, sometimes healthy, sometimes not, right? And I very much like to think about what does that matrix look like? Is it healthy? Are there strong connections? Is the is power shared? Is there opportunity for discourse? Um, very rarely is there this kind of, um, whether benevolent or not, city entity which is defining everything and then residents either are part of it or not. Um, because I think if you want to understand engagement, you have to then understand that there are networks between, you know, some places have really strong church networks and those are really important sources of power and those relationships to their constituents as they relate to the mayor's office and a social service network, you know, right? It's complex. And the more you understand those, those kind of human and organizational relationships, the better. So I'll just say that as a kind of a, a point, uh, but then and use it as a full stop uh, to talk about how, how and why do parks fit on that network? And I think I, I, I have a thesis, I think a thesis is shared by many other people, is that parks are a powerful conduit for building community, right? It's a powerful conduit for, for um, uh, a way to engage residents, not just about that park, but about community building in general. Um, uh, there's a few reasons why. First, parks are something that everybody likes. You know, you could give a survey in America about, do you think parks are a good thing? I bet you 90 plus percent would agree that parks and open space are a really important asset. They are people who are going to use that in red states, blue states, small towns, big towns, right? It's, it's something that, that everyone can appreciate. And because of that, it's in a lot of ways depoliticized. And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of challenging issues about parks. But in a lot of ways, um, as, as we all you know, confronted this year, this election year, this very divisive year, it's actually one way, and that's proved through history for the past hundred years. It's, it's one of those areas where we can agree, no, we need them. We, we need parks and open space. Um, so in that way, it's a, it's a way for community actually to, to come together around something that, you know, you might call a dinner table issue, something that's more uh, accessible. Um, it's also something that can really hold uh, heritage in place really well. It's, it's refle- can, can be a place reflective of culture and, and tradition. Um, 
it's also a great um, kind of early on-ramp for engaging with community. It's something that you could join a friends up group or join a community board, parks board, um, that, that if you're, for whatever reason, don't feel comfortable joining a city council meeting or a community board hearing that might feel foreign. Maybe you're an immigrant. Like, will I, will, will ICE be there? Will, um, um, no, this is real. I mean, people, people really feel like I don't belong in, as a part of a civic process or feel like a civic process is rigged. Um, but a park is, is a really wonderful way actually to bring people together and say, no, your voice can be part of this process. Um, and so for that reason, I really think, that just as we should invest in access to parks and open space, we should also invest in the tools by which community um, can engage with parks, uh, whether that's creating more friends of group, creating stewardship organizations, creating conservancies in the right ways, um, can be a, a really powerful tool. Um, and again, it's not just to say, hey, do you think this park should be here? Do you think this renovation of the park is important? It's actually about using the park as one of those kind of social conveners that can have impacts on the other dimensions of our lives, whether that's healthcare or housing or whatnot. So, uh, and I think a lot of organizations are really um, um, understanding that, advancing that, and centering that message. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, in you were talking pre our recording conversation, how you thought Wenatchee, uh, Washington. Um, had a really great example of a truly equitable um, engagement process. Uh, how would you define, how, how do you define that success and in general, but then why did that park um, process fulfill that requirement for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think maybe as a, as there's, a, there's a pre question there about why, why are metrics and assessment important, right? Because that's not, not necessarily universally understood. Or, or even adopted, let's say. And it's also much easier to um, um, build and assess those kinds of metrics, which are much more easy to, to measure. So um, the 10 minute walk to the park is a very important metric that you know, TPL and other organizations have adopted. That's very clear. Like I can understand I'm, a, I'm an individual. Do I have a 10 minute walk to a park? You know, there's some variables to that. Um, you can measure other things like, does this park capture stormwater? Does the park have a certain number of amenities? These are much more concrete, but measuring equitable community development or equitable park engagement, there's not really a, um, a consensus about that. So I actually think there is work to be done nationally and locally about saying, here's what equitable park development looks like. I don't know of a really solid definition yet, I think I think there are um, there's really good work happening at a, at a local level or at a more institutional level that's getting to that. But I think I said that's, that's actually one of the really um, key steps that this field needs to take in the future. Um, you referenced Wenatchee, Washington, which is a really um, uh, beautiful case study. Um, it's it's an area of Washington that is famous for a couple things. It's famous for um, growing apples. It's the apple capital of the world. It's also one of the mariachi capitals of the United States. Right? These are these are two really important facts. Um, South Wenatchee is, is largely um, uh, Latino Latina, and very uh, very proud community of its heritage of, of agriculture. Proud of its of its um, cultural heritage, um, largely coming from from Mexico and a few other places in Central, Central America. 
Um, there was a park development happening there, a park renovation actually, a very well used park, you know, park used so much that it needed to be renovated. Um, it, it was done in kind of a typical way. Like, you know, there was a meeting in the community center, come join us, what do you think? All, all for good intentions. Um, and it was very poorly attended. Uh, again, there's a lot of um, um, migrant communities, multi-generational migrant communities that, that did not feel safe. I mean, I mentioned that earlier, but literally did not feel safe. Like, is this gonna be, um, uh, will ICE be there to deport us? Those, those were very real feel, fears as part of that. Um, so the team that was working on that, TPL included, said, let's do this differently. First of all, let's go to the community. Let's go to where there's existing um, kind of sense of cultural heritage. And that was at, you know, mariachi performances and mariachi festivals where the community showed up. I mean, there was food, there was dancing, there was music, right? That's where the community best reflected itself. And so, first of all, going there was really critical. Um, and you know, putting a booth up there and saying, hey, we're doing this, what do you think? Oh my gosh, yeah, this is great. We, we want to be part of this. Um, and then recognizing that the true expertise was already there. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the expertise of those people were, was maybe in planning or design or infrastructure, you know, which is great, it's really important. But the expertise about that place was already embedded there. And I think the key turning point was first about building a community group called the Parque Pedrinos to organize that interest. And then secondly, seeing culture as a great way to keep that conduit up, right? Culture is a thing that connects us, it connects our sense of self, our sense of community. And by making it about culture and not some complicated political transaction, it became a sense of, a process of joy, a process of, of love. And so from, from then on, there was, you know, not only engaging around the park, but there was, um, um, papel picado, which is cutting paper for like a quinceañera, quinceañera, the kind of uh, the birthday festivals. There was uh, music, there was dance, there was food, all of which was also talking about the park, um, mm -hmm. talking about what do you want to see here. And so, because of that, they wanted to see um, a kiosco, which is a central feature in a lot of Mexican parks, which is where you would go to have bands perform or have celebrations. Um, some of the decorative elements around the park were about birds who migrated from Mexico to Washington to like represent that kind of migratory pattern. There was documentary filmmaking. And all of a sudden the groups that were doing this were investing in community building, not just a park, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was really the turning point. But what was so beautiful is that the Parque Petrinos really led all this work. But then they were also realizing this is fun. We can do this in other ways too. Um, and so, when there were some funding cuts at city council, they said, no, we'll go to city council and testify why this is so important. Those cuts were restored. Mm -hmm. um, they also worked with um, uh, uh, a voting organization, voter, um, uh, the, the name will lose me a little bit, but they worked with them to do a, a voting drive. Um, and in the next election, I think it was the 2018 election, voter turnout increased in the Latino community 300%, right? So you start, you start, saying, no, we're building a park. That's what we're doing. And the engagement was kind of transactional. But when that, when that engagement moved up that spectrum to really about building power, now the park is a platform to um, build really tr truly franchising people as part of a democratic process, building power that will last way beyond this park, right? But ultimately, then you will also have a really wonderful 
real asset for this community that's reflective of, of their heritage and their sense of self, it's going to have pretty measurable and profound benefits. Um, so ultimately, to me, I know what that looks like. And your, I know your original question was about measuring that. And it's, it was one of the challenges of this process, which was it kind of went, you know, it took a step, took a step, took a step. Nowhere at the beginning did people think, oh, we're going to work on voter turnout, right? That was right. never an initial assumption. So how did they get there? And I, I think a lot of people were looking at, at that project and others and saying, well, how can we preemptively think about um, equity engagement as a as part of that process? Um, you know, a, a good example is the 11th Street Bridge Project in your neck of the woods, um, which is actually looking at a park building process as a way to build equity. So they're doing affordable housing, they're doing job creation. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting model about seeing parks as kind of a way to, to, to measure some of these other equity indicators. Yeah, um, I think what I was thinking about um, while you were just uh, commenting is, is when Raven and I were making um, our park metric system based off of our three case study um, spaces. So Anoka County, um, Wenatchee and Austin, Texas, um, it's interesting because we put, uh, you know, programming and placemaking as one of our, our metric requirements and trying to create a different, you know, sub requirements needed in order to say, yes, this space um, is successful in program programming or placemaking. And because of that, they um, are reaching, you know, more equitable community engagement uh, levels than maybe other spaces. But, um, you know, part of that that requirement that we focused on is getting people to not only engage with themselves, but also the the physical space of the land through programming and placemaking. Because when they, like community members being they, when they feel more attached to the space and feel as if they have a community and, and a space where their community can go to, you know, engagement levels rise. And like you said, you know, unexpected uh, you know, successes come out of that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that that kind of segues into our next question, unless Raven, you had a comment that you wanted to, to make. Just that I love how it transitioned the entire process of having a say in the building of the park from one of fear to one of joy. And that I think is such a success to take out that fear. And I think that's mm -hmm. another way you could measure how successful engagement and community um, building of power is, is if it takes out that fear and turns it into a joyful process. But mm -hmm. go ahead, Helen. Yeah. Oh, I just got another comment after hearing that too. But that's that's another thing that that's really beautiful about this process is that, you know, you can get people from underrepresented communities to come to these engagement meetings or, um, you know, just becoming a part of the process, but they might not feel comfortable enough to speak out. So, you know, placemaking through cultural programs and social events and things of that nature really, you know, takes out the fear of it and makes people feel more inclined, you know, to feel as though this is their space and they do have a, have a say in what, what goes on. Um, yeah, so our, our next question, sorry, is uh, which demographics or populations do you feel get left out the most in your community? Um, and how do you actively try to keep them engaged and informed? So I know you mentioned it briefly in, in our previous question, but you know, if you have more. Um, 
Um, I first want to go back to what the comments you both made about. Sure. There's, it's, it's also important to acknowledge a reality that a lot of this work, particularly people who are doing what they would call mission-driven work, right? Work that's not for, for profit, work that's for community benefit. There is a real fear, um, largely justified, in disenfranchised communities and underinvested communities around the country of, of change and change that looks like a new park, a new grocery store, a new housing complex. And I, I don't, I think it's important to not to underestimate how prevalent that fear is because of gentrification and displacement and people taking advantage of a, of a change. And I think the Wenatchee example is a good one because it, it really built power alongside the park building process. And it's, it's one of the great shames in this country. And to be honest, it really takes me off beyond no other is that there are people who don't have access to fresh food who don't have access to transportation, who don't have access to, to, to good, good parks and don't want them because they're afraid that their neighborhood will change and they won't be able to afford living there anymore. It's, it's one of the real tragedies that exists everywhere across this country. And ultimately, the questions that you are posing need to be answered so that we don't have that, so that people do have access to fresh food, so that they are they have access to parks and open space, they have access to housing, and that they have voice in that, that they have control over that, they, they, and they know how to do so. It's something we need to reconcile as a, as a country and in communities across this country. Um, so I say that as a bit of a preface to which demographic or populations get left out. I mean, the list is long, and ultimately it goes back to who has access to power, and who has been unempowered historically, right? And in this country, you know, I'm in I'm in New York, Design Trust, my, my organization works in New York, and we we are a dynamic global city, but we, we're also reflective of the rest of the country. And in our community, in our city, um, black and brown um, uh, folks across New York are left out of conversations. Um, immigrant populations are left out of conversations. Um, working class are left out of conversations. Mm -hmm. It's really measured along power. Um, I think it's very important, particularly in this country, to acknowledge um, um, our historical um, and structural racism that has existed for 200 years, right? And we've, our cities are very much defined by how we've, how we've used place to segregate and um, uh, disenfranchise based on race, particularly in the black community. But mm -hmm. that's also true for many other people. Uh, it's true for, um, for sense of age. W you know, we have plenty of people who are below the age of eight or above the age of 80 who have a really tough time feeling like they can um, live gracefully in place, um, uh, same with gender, same with sexuality in, in this country. So it's, I, I say all this to say, hey, it's a complicated tapestry and it's important that we're, again, to my first comment, to know wherever we are, to know what privileges we rest on and to be able to identify how, how each one of us can be a, a voice for change. Just a small way. This is not asking everyone to be, you know, um, 
uh, a kind of a savior. We, we all can make better decisions or learn more or be more empathetic. It's something we can all do um, um, in, in small degrees over time and build that power. Um, but, you know, in New York, as in other places, race is something that is so central to this work. And it, it's, I think it's worth um, um, pointing that out very particularly uh, as a real challenge uh, historically. Um, I should also say, too, you know, we think about um, the connection between race and place, and you think about things like redlining, right, where um, um, certain people were not allowed to have uh, home mortgages because of the color of their skin. Oftentimes, though, I hear in a lot of conversations that, oh, that was a historical past that we're still dealing with. That's still true today, right? There's research coming out that shows if you're black looking for a home in Long Island, realtors will, will push you to a different neighborhood, right? That, that came out research last year. It's still happening. Um, so I think we need to you know, understand that this is still a very much a reality, that, that racism is, is still shaping our places, uh, and it takes a lot of active um, um, work to be aware of that and then to think about how that can be changed in, in, over the long term. Mm. Right. So taking that self-awareness and learning about your own, where you're coming from, your power stance, and how to kind of break down that historical power paradigm that we all live and work in and how do we break that down so that it, the entire process of living essentially becomes more equitable. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're about at our time, but we wanted to thank you so much for being here with us. And um, I don't know if either of you have any closing thoughts you'd like to end on. Um, I mean, I feel like the time went by so fast. I feel like we could have went on talking forever and we, you know, have a lot more questions, but I, I really enjoyed our conversation and, you know, want to thank you as well for, for taking the time to do this. Well, I'll just say, Helen and Raven, thank you both for inviting me. But importantly, it's it's really inspiring to, to see young people so interested in this. And that's, I think it's a really important really point. And for people who are listening or people who are, are part of this, um, um, this is a really urgent question in this country. And so, uh, I, I think just encourage everyone to, to find a way that they can be to get involved in their community, whether that's with and around a park or some other way that, that they can make a change. Um, and just to know that, you know, right now we need a million small changes over, you know, this, this country to, to make a difference. You don't have to be, you don't have to start a nonprofit or start a, something like that. You can really do something very simple um, to be engaged, to, to be engaged in your community. It's really critical. So, so thanks Helen Raven for, raising awareness of, of, of that, that possibility. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our episode on equitable community engagement with Raven and Helen. If you're looking for more episodes discussing justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in urban planning, be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel. Thank you for listening to SubGW, George Washington University Sustainable Urban Planning Graduate Student Run Podcast. Catch us next time to hear more about what's up with urban planning.